Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to talk about something slightly different, Hong Kong. The protests there are now well into their second month and we're going to try and make sense of who the protesters are and what's at stake for both sides, not just for the people in Hong Kong, but for the government in Beijing as well. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I've got two people here with me who are going to help us understand this. Hans van der Ven is Professor of Modern Chinese History here in Cambridge. And Angus Huey is a journalist with extensive experience in Hong Kong. And as we're going to hear, I think, in a second, some personal contacts as well with some of the people who are leading these protests. So we're going to get to the history of this, where this comes from, how it feeds into some stuff that's been going on in Hong Kong for a long time. But we thought we'd start by just trying to work out who the protesters are, because we've seen it. I mean, I'm speaking for myself here. seen it on TV. There are kind of two presiding images for me here. One is the mass protest. So these are demonstrations that are brought you know, different numbers, but hundreds of thousands of people, maybe as many as half a million or more onto the streets. But we also had in the last week, a much smaller group of people who are in some sense leading on this. They occupied the legislative chamber. Some things happened there, which we can talk about. It's a young group, primarily. So just tell us about them first, Angus. Who were the people who occupied the chamber last week? Well, I think majority of them were teenagers or just youngsters. So they are mainly students. I just read some news coverage. There is a participants that got into the legislative council chamber who is just 14 years old. Really? Yeah. I'm not quite sure he or she, but he or she just told the newspaper that she did this decision after very careful considerations. So she or he was not manipulated by anybody. They decide to go there because they think there is an urgency to get into the chambers to show that discontent and to... and to escalate the protests. Are these young people, so teenagers and students, do they see themselves as leading on this? What's their role? What are they trying to do by escalating it? I think one of the features of this protest is that most of the participants, they think that they have no leaders in this movement. So everyone has their own decision and everyone respect other decisions. And that's why they just think that perhaps they do what they think is right. And other protesters will respect the decision. That's why they want to escalate the protest because the day that they got into the Legislative Council was on 1st of July. And actually the first massive rally was on 9th of June. That the government refused to have a direct response to the public demands and without having a very good answers, the protesters decide to escalate the protests in order to have an immediately response from the government. So in a way, could you say it's slightly the other way around than one might expect from these things? The mass demonstration comes first, the smaller group comes second. Is that 
Well, I think there's, there's a lot to say, but I mean, the, the mass demonstrations began around various issues. There were millions of people, about a third of the population of Hong Kong was on the streets. And I think it has grown. And one thing that I, I think I would like your view on is this is not going to stop, first of all. This is going to go on and on and on. It's sort of even the government giving in on the extradition law, that's not going to be the end of it. The stakes are much higher than just this law. And I think there is a sense of sort of almost martyrdom, as you say, so a 14-year-old people have killed themselves as suicides right three or four at least four now so that sense that people are willing to sacrifice their lives for what they are fighting for and that gives a whole new purpose or or this is a new ball game this isn't just a fight about an extradition law it's about much more than that but just to be clear the trigger was the extradition law if we just do the sequence of this so the initial protests were explicitly to try and get that law repealed and it's now grown much beyond that because so we've been told that the law is dead and then there's an argument about what that means but it hasn't quite been killed yes but how do we get from protests about an extradition law to what now looks like a protest about the entire system i think a couple of things in the background are important here one it is the extradition law it is also the usual demonstrations in commemoration of the Tiananmen massacre this is the 30th anniversary of that, so that's very important. And when you say usual, are there regular demonstrations around this time in Hong Kong? It's an annual fe- feature. Annual feature, yeah. And this is, the Hong Kong people said that this is the unique feature that we can have in the whole China territory, because only Hong Kong will allow to have this kind of commemoration of the June 4th massacre. I think what strikes me as significant change with earlier demonstrations, I mean, there's been a lot of demonstrations over decades in Hong Kong, but it is now that the insistence that Hong Kong is not China. That's what sprayed in the Legislative Council chamber, and that makes it very hard for Beijing to respond to. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think this is one of the features of the protest. They want to show that Hong Kong is not China, Hong Kong is kind of unique. Why do people are so angry about the previous years, like five to six years of protests since the Umbrella Movement in 2014, is that Hong Kong is forced to be a part of China. They're going to merge into the Greater Bay Area, which the government emphasized a lot, like we are just an ordinary cities with Shenzhen, with Zhongshan, with those cities in Guangdong. So like the status of Hong Kong has been lowered and this is not what the Hong Kong citizens would like to see and this is not respectful to one country and to a system. Because that was in a way going to be my question. If the slogan is we are not China, it's actually rejecting one country, two systems. It's rejecting the one country bit. Because I'd assumed that what we were talking about here was the protest was we are no longer two systems, but is it actually rejecting the one country? Can I just add a bit of background? Which I think it is the extradition law. It is also the fact that in West Kowloon, there's a train station that connects Hong Kong to the high-speed rail net in China, which is actually terrific. But that comes with the right of PRC customers people to operate within Hong Kong. So it's a very direct undermining of Hong Kong independence. There's also the, the huge issue of the bridge that's being built between Hong Kong and Zhuhai and Macau. You're right, this greater Bay Area is sort of Beijing overwhelming Hong Kong, reducing its significance, taking its independence away, going against the underlying principles of one country, two systems. 
But is it the two systems bit or is it the one country bit that's under pressure here? One of the reasons is that, all right, we emphasize one country, two system. But in the previous years or in the last decade, the Chinese government just emphasized one country. But they didn't emphasize two system and they didn't respect the difference between two system. And that's why people are angry about this. And they just said that, like, you are not giving us what you promised because you are just saying that you should respect one country. But they didn't mention anything about the differences between two systems and two living styles. I'm still not completely clear. Is this turning into something that looks genuinely like a kind of independence movement? Because one country, two systems, and if we go back to the umbrella revolt, I guess we call it from 2014, which was about suffrage and democracy, very clearly focused on the idea we were promised a different way of doing politics. But this seems to be going beyond that. This is what I'm trying to get at. Is it actually moving towards the idea that, I mean, one country's two systems will not work in the end, we need to break away? Or are we not there yet? I think independence is one option. The protests have thought of independence after the failure of the umbrella movement in 2014. Because the failure of the umbrella movement showed that the Chinese government is not going to give genuine universal suffrage to Hong Kong. So the only way for Hong Kongers to get genuine democracy is to get rid of China. And that's why they just believe independence would be an option. Maybe just to underscore the importance of that point is that one country, two systems was supposed to mean that the PRC has responsibility for national defense and foreign relations. That's it. In all other respects, Hong Kong was supposed to be independent. The court of highest appeal, the highest legal body in the colonial period was, of course, the Privy Council. The option would have been to make it in Beijing, but no, it was decided that the highest court of appeal is in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has its own currency, its own legal system, it was going to be capitalist, it would evolve its own laws, etc., etc., etc. Beijing is, is, I think, sort of not smart politics and trying to strongly undermine that. There might be reasons for Beijing to do this from a more geopolitical, but that it has made Hong Kong people irate, especially the youth, I think is very understandable. Right. And if you try and frame this in the, the broader historical setting here, so the one country, two systems and the basic law that underpins it is a commitment for 50 years, right, as I understand it. And we are now Two 22, years. I was trying yeah. to get the days right, 22 years in. We're 30 years on from Tiananmen. We're talking about protesters here who are 14, 15, 16, 18, so have no memory of British Hong Kong. Yes. And the thing is, we're right in the middle of this now. We're in the middle of this period. And if you're that age, the 50-year thing is running out, right? I mean, is that part of it? There, there was this promise... 50 years seems like a long time at the beginning, but when you're halfway through, 50 years isn't so long. So is some of this being driven by the fact that there is there's a large group of people in Hong Kong, young people who have no memory of the, the British Hong Kong, for whom, if this ends in less than 30 years' time, they've still got a lot of their lives ahead of them. And, and now is the moment. I mean, are, are we right at that sort of moment of historical tension where, because we're in the middle, this has accelerated it? Angus can speak on behalf of uh, Hong Kong young people. I mean, uh, how do we know? But it is significant, of course, that there's a huge university and high school population that is extremely as well connected to the world, etc., etc., and sees this coming down down the tracks. And like many young people around the world, they face a future that is uncertain politically, but also economically. There's no way they can afford an apartment 
even a small apartment, even what's called a coffin apartment. These are small apartments divided in little coffins where you can. So that's that's a very dis- so that's one side of it. I think the other side of it that part of the higher education system in Hong Kong allows ten percent of mainland students to come in. Now those are very bright, very energetic students. So the relations on campuses between mainland students and Hong Kong students is terrible. Twenty years ago, Hong Kong students would have looked down on these country bumpkins coming from China. Now, these are the brightest guys who are going to take the best jobs in Hong Kong. So that's another reason why their future looks bleak. And I think that's an underlying social tension in Hong Kong that is certainly part of this. And I think there's another reason for the youth that they refuse to trust the one country or two system. One of the reasons is that they believe, because it's back to the negotiation between Britain and China in the 1980s, during that period, actually Hong Kong citizens were not allowed to get involved in the negotiation. And that's why for us, the Hong Kong youngsters, we don't believe that, all right, one country, two system, or the Sino-British Joint Declaration represent us because we don't have the right to get into the negotiation and we don't have the right to express our views during the negotiation. So why do we need to recognize the Joint Declaration? And this is one of the biggest reasons why youngsters refuse to recognize the system. So is there then a generational tension here? You've got the mass protest, which is young and old. I mean, as you say, a significant proportion of the total population came out onto the streets. And yet, it sounds like there's going to be a very different perspective on this from Hong Kong residents in their 50s and 60s than in their 20s. So is that tension coming out? Is there a sense from the older Hong Kong residents that the young people are going too far? I think it's kind of hard to generalize because when we see it in the protests, there are a lot of protesters in their 40s or in their 50s. They joined the radical protests or even they joined the movement on 1st of July getting into the Legislative Council chambers. So for me, it's hard to say whether the older generation we believe the younger generation going too far. I think one factor here is, of course, that Hong Kong is a place of escape, or has been traditionally a place of escape for many people in China. So during the Cultural Revolution, etc., people fled from China. You know, they had to swim rivers with sharks in them. So for people in Hong Kong to distrust the mainland, this is obvious. So in that sense, I think there's sympathy for the young. I think the divide is that the older generation would have been satisfied with a genuine one country, two systems arrangement. That would be fine. The younger generation is far more political. And I think that call for independence is is quite loud. And that's a real difference between 10, 20 years ago. One of the things that's striking from a British perspective is that in some of the protests, there has been use of symbols from the period of British colonial rule, which, again, if you're British, seems a bit odd as a, as a way of sort of signaling yeah. your desire for independence. What does that mean to the younger generation? So for the people who lived it, it means one thing. But if you don't have any lived memory of it, waving the flags from that time, what, what is the symbolism of that? It's not about Britain, presumably. But to be honest, from my perspective, I think like the colonial flag or the importance of like calling back the colonial era is kind of overemphasized because only a very, very small number of citizens, they believe that is workable to going back, like asking Britain to come back. This is completely politically unrealistic. Youngsters won't believe in this way. 
But there are a lot of sort of British symbols. The red buses are there, the mailboxes are there, people drive on the left, the taxis are there. So there's a lot of symbolism in street life that echoes, that sort of continues an earlier period. I think that's the reference when you know, there was at least independence from China. And I think a, a group of young people do carry these symbols around as a way of, of, of asserting their identity as I'm not Chinese. Yeah, but to be honest, I think for me, I don't have any emotional attachment to the UK. I just treat it as a very ordinary element in our societies. Right. Yeah, we don't think this is kind of special or we don't kind of link it automatically to the British culture or something like that. To be honest, I think for some youngsters, they even think that Britain betrayed them uh-huh. because we can see from the passport arrangement, the British national overseas. So Britain in the 1980s and in the 1990s, they refused to offer the British citizenships to Hong Kong citizens. So they just arranged a different passport for us, which had different treatments. And that's why we can see like, for some youngsters, they thought that like, all right, the UK didn't really do their job to fulfill their moral obligations to provide the best for Hong Kong people. Is there a wider context here as seen from the people who are protesting? This is a protest movement which is familiar from the last 10 plus years. There have been protest movements of this kind around the world in different settings. It also reminds me a bit of the recent climate movements too, because what we're talking about, very young people thinking that there's a future that we will have to live and the rest of you won't have to live. And so we're taking really seriously the thought that these long time frames matter. So I'm guessing that some of the inspiration for this is being drawn from protests in the West and elsewhere, including going back to the Arab Spring, more than it is from a sort of indigenous tradition of protest. Is that right? That it has some more of that going on? I think it's a really interesting aspect of this, that it is quite international, the sources on which people are drawing. Perhaps one thing to emphasize here is that actually some of the same things are happening in mainland China, where you have the Marxism study societies who are linking up with uh, unions, including in Shenzhen. The students are disappearing in, in Shenzhen. There is a dissatisfaction. And those Marxism study societies that are spread through various universities in China they deny the whole reform and opening up process. This was a huge mistake. It's created all this corruption, social inequality, and pollution. And so just that environmental issue is echoing through that as well. If you go around university campuses in China, you can see these small groups of students talking with each other. And is there with that, because obviously that's a very different intellectual tradition, but it seems to have an echo in the sense that it is harking back. I mean, so no one wants to go back to pre-reform China in that context, in the same way no one wants to go back to colonial Hong Kong. And yet this is being used as a symbol, like a mistake was made 20 or 30 years ago. Right. Is that what connects it? It's the denial of 20 years of whatever you want to call it, opening up or neoliberalism. Go for it, whichever one you choose, I think. But that is a divide. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With the Hong Kong protest, there are two ways of thinking about it, one of which is it does have something in common with similar kinds of discontents in mainland China, in other parts of the region. But in Hong Kong, it's much more visible simply because it can be more visible. I mean, you cannot get 500,000 people on the streets anywhere else in China. So what we, in a way, what we don't know is, is this being driven by a shared sense of frustration? And it's just much clearer in Hong Kong because it can be. Or is this Hong Kong specific? And is the reason that there are half a million people plus on the streets in Hong Kong? Because actually, this isn't just another group of young people who are frustrated with neoliberalism. This is a passionate political movement about Hong Kong and its status in relation to mainland China. Both of these things could be going on, I think, at the I same think, time. I think these things can, be, can happen at the same time. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah I agree. Yeah. What would the protesters count as success here? Because once the stakes have been raised, independence is not coming, right? It's not yeah. coming anytime soon or ever. So the one end of the scale, you've got independence, an unrealistic right. goal. The other end of the scale, you've got the origin of the protest, which was an extradition law, which has been parked, but not completely killed. Where between those two does success lie? I think the protesters, they have at least five demands, which is very clear. So the first one is that they required the chief executive, Carolam to fully withdraw the bill, because now the chief executive, she just said that the bill is dead. But this is ridiculous to us because in the regulations of the Legislative Council, there are only two options. You can either postpone or withdraw. There is no terms like what Carol Lam suggests. Suspend, pause, and later on, like yesterday what she said, the bill is dead. You can't find these terms in the regulation of the Legislative Council. So she has to say withdraw. Withdraw, yes. Until she says that, the fight goes on. No, and, and then because we have the very huge protest on 12th of June, and the police have used excessive force, and they had hurt a lot of protesters. And that's why an other demand from the protesters is that we need to set up an independent investigation committee to have a very comprehensive report to show that what did the police do during that date and is there any solution or better suggestion for them to implement a reform in later days and the third one is that the government should promise not to prosecute those who joined the protest on 12th June these are three major demands from the protesters. And what would count as a plausible commitment on the second and the third? Because does this have to come from Beijing? I mean, where where does the response have to come from for it to be believable? Just the government, because the government can do that. Actually, quite a number of pro-Beijing legislative councillors or some social celebrities, they have said that it's actually workable to have an investigation committee, an independent investigation committee. But they stress that the report should not just cover what the police did. 
but more importantly, like the in and out of the protest, what did the government do wrong throughout the whole months and the excessive force used of police? Can I, can I raise another issue? Because I think the issue that is driving much of the protest for many years now is that of democracy. The Legislative Council is only half elected. The umbrella movement began with the demand that this should be this should be increased. There's also the issue of the narrowing of the electorate for the chief executive. Right, was much broader. There's an electoral committee of 1,200 people, which is made up, and sort of the whole constitutional debate began when Carrie Lam decided to have only one or two nominees then to be appointed by. So there's a, there's a reduction of democracy in Hong Kong. So I find it interesting you're not raising yes. the issue of democracy. And I think a real win, not going to happen, but a real win would be a genuinely elected chief executive and a genuinely elected legislative council. Surely that must be yeah, a huge is, demand. This is the ultimate demand of the protester, okay, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say it's the ultimate demand, it's the ultimate demand in the sense that this protest doesn't stop until we get it, or... We may well stop this protest because we may get some concessions on the things that we are immediately protesting about, and then we need to continue the pressure for this because these could end in very different ways. I mean, you keep protesting until you get an elected chief executive. That's a whole other level of commitment yeah, yeah. because that is also not coming anytime soon, right? An investigative body could be set up tomorrow, but genuine democratic reform is going to involve negotiation with Beijing, surely. Yeah, and that's why I haven't mentioned the ultimate aims of the protester or the ultimate demand of the protester because once you want to fight for the universal suffrage of the chief executive and the legislative council, this is not an issue just in Hong Kong. And so how do the... Because the protests, clearly they put they put huge pressure on Carrie Lam, I and mean, we've seen it, and putting huge pressure on people who are there. But what is the form of pressure that is being exercised over the leadership in Beijing. How is that actually working here? Because there's a lot at stake in Beijing too. For, yeah, in this. And maybe you should talk a little bit about what is at stake for Beijing. So Beijing is, is just the Hong Kong problem, but there are many problems that Xi Jinping faces, including student unrest within China, unions and so on, but of course especially Xinjiang. And there's supposedly quite a bit of violence there. There is Tibet, Mongolia, China's borders are always a big problem for China. I think it's historically it's very interesting that the collapse of a regime often happens with a problem at the border, which is one of the reasons that Mao intervened in Korea, because the failure of the Ming dynasty to do so led to the Manchus coming in. And so these are sort of historical memories operating in Beijing. So for Xi Jinping to look at Hong Kong and seeing this out of control, that is actually, you know, from, you know, it's thousands of miles away. But in terms of historical perspective, those border problems can sort of escalate so quickly and cause the whole country to collapse. There's also Taiwan. Maybe you mentioned Taiwan. And then now America's intervening in Korea. So that's yet more border trouble for for Xi Jinping in Beijing. Yeah. So in that context makes the situation for him extremely difficult. Yeah, the Taiwan is a great example because I guess they want to use one country and two system to sell it to Taiwan and let the Taiwan citizens to accept the system that Hong Kong is working. So if Hong Kong fails, that's not a good offer. Actually, I remember like one year ago or just this year, Xi Jinping had a speech to kind of sell one country into the system right. to Taiwan and just said that like, all right, Taiwan citizens, you may consider having 
the one country two system, just like what Hong Kong has, is a very successful mo- <laughs> a very successful model, and that's why you should accept it. But now it's completely a different story. In Taiwan, there are two parties: one is the Nationalists, and one is the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party. And the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, is more sort of towards the. I mean, he's not going to call for independence, but he's more on the independent right. Now, what Beijing wants. Is to have a nationalist president in Taiwan because they have been much more open to relations with China. So the Hong Kong protests have really helped the cause of Tsai Ing-wen. Nobody thought until they happened that she would have much of a chance, and now she's sort of back in the saddle, and nobody's going to f- vote for a party. I mean, let's be honest: in Taiwan, 99% of the people really don't want unification right. if they can possibly avoid it. They also don't want war, so somewhere in between is, is what they want. But they realize they're a small country. But this is going to help Tsai Ing-wen, and so Xi Jinping has yet another worry about that. And do we have any sense of how successfully the regime in Beijing have been able to suppress the news spreading through China? Because we read in the West that what's going on in Hong Kong is not widely known in China, and the, the firewall exists. And yet, as you say, part of the reason the protests are happening is because Hong Kong has been increasingly integrated into China, and there is much more exchange, and there is much more cross-border exchange. So you can't you can't keep the story out if you're integrating the system, and yet. The whole point is, as you say, that the, the threat is to make sure there's no contagion. Yeah, the contagion issue is, is a serious issue for Beijing. Obviously, I think that this news is very hard to keep out. Certainly, the educated city, university-dwelling people in China, it's not going to. And keep in mind that lots of mainland students are in Australia, New Zealand, in Europe, in England, still part of Europe, uh, the United States, and so on. And people have found all kinds of ways to get around the Great Firewall of China. This news can't be kept out. And of course, some of the protests now are directly, this, is, this will worry Xi Jinping. So the protests two days ago were held at Kowloon West Station, which is the terminus where mainland visitors, mainland tourists have come to Hong Kong. And so the protests are clearly now targeting, aiming to spread the message to China. So Angus, where do you think this is heading? I'm going to ask you an unfair question. Like, <laughs> what is going to happen next? Because the stakes are really high. I think in a way, in, in Britain particularly, I don't know about the rest of Europe or the United States, this hasn't had quite as much attention as it should have. I mean, at the moment, in Britain, there's a conservative leadership contest going on. And the big story is the UK ambassador in Washington and our relation with Trump. And yet, not least because of Britain's stake in this, this is a much bigger deal, right? So give us a sense of where you think it's heading in the next weeks, or months, or years, (laughs) or decades. Take Take your pick. I'm not quite sure. But I mean, in the following months, I guess the protests will still go on because students they played a great role in the protests, and now it's the holidays for students. They can organize different protests every day, and that's why I guess once the government or the chief executive refuse to say the word withdraw, they will still continue the protests. But if she were to say the word withdraw, would that? And then we will have the second demand and the third demand, which is the investigation report, and later on, promise not to prosecute the protesters. And we will go step by step, I guess. But I'm kind of pessimistic towards the future because, you know, the government, the Chinese government, they have money. And nowadays, I just kind of sense that the protesters are kind of exhausted because they have been on the streets for a month and like 
every weekend they need to go down the streets to protest. They kind of exhaust, and the government refuse, still refuse to have a direct response. And I'm not quite sure whether this momentum can last. And the the model, the previous example of the umbrella protests, which in a way faded away. I mean, the issue didn't fade away, but the protest faded away. Is there any reason to think that this is different? I think Angus is right, and that this will peter out. But then, you know, as soon as the new school year opens up, there is always demonstrations at that point and demands for independence, and then the school heads have to crack down on that. And so, what is happening in Hong Kong is building up a tradition of protest that will feed on each other. And I think, yes, it may fade away for a while, but the issues remain and will only get stronger. So I don't think this is over the, the at all. Grievance still exist, and um, it will only accumulating, keep accumulating. The anger will keep intensifying. One angle I want to bring up is Carrie Lam's background, which I think is an interesting one. She's Catholic. She went to a Catholic school. Uh, She was uh, a prefect in her year. So I think sort of Catholics dealing with the Pope, this is sort of Carrie Lam dealing with Xi Jinping. But, you know, it's that kind of relationship, perhaps. She then joined the civil service very quickly. Her right. husband is an, is an academic, a, a mathematician who is, I think, in Beijing, right? In Beijing, previously yeah. in Beijing. Yeah. yeah, which is, again, is a side of this, which is you should think about. But she joined the civil service, and I think within the civil service, she's very impressed with the Hong Kong civil service, uh, quite independent. But there is a strain in the civil service that has decided that their best future is working with, listening to Beijing. And I think she represents exactly that. So she went, she's not a politician. She went through the civil service. She was chief of the civil service and then became the Beijing candidate for the next chief executive. And I think that's kind of where lots of difficulties may arise as well. And she sort of built up her name as cracking down, including on the umbrella movement, being tough. So that position is for her difficult to live down and makes it, of course, in the students' eyes, even more controversial. And as I understand it, initially her resignation was a demand and now there's a sense it doesn't really make any difference whether she goes or not. Is that right, that people have moved away from thinking that the great triumph would be to get the chief to quit to now thinking the problem is not the chief, it's what lies behind the chief? And even she admitted that yesterday, she said that, all right, my resignation is not an issue of mine. I need to take care of different considerations and this is not just my issues. And this is what Carrie Lam said yesterday, because they need to ask for the approval of the central government, the Chinese government, if she really wants to resign. But at this moment, from the perspective of the Chinese Communist parties, I don't think they found a better choice than Carrie Lam. And Carrie Lam, I guess, she will stay in the office for probably the following two to three years. Yeah, the, the issue is going to be her re-election, as the, you know, the previous one was not re-elected, and they're supposed to be re-elected, and that's, you know, that's going to be another political moment in Hong Kong's history. And presumably there would also be quite a lot of anxiety about ever setting the precedent that a senior political figure in the Chinese system, even two systems, resigns in the face of street protests. You don't want, you do not want to cross that no. bridge, and ever. And that's right, and I think that's part of the mainland political culture. When push comes to start, you're tough. That's what Deng Xiaoping did uh, at, at Tiananmen Square, and that's built into the system. And they're not giving in to protest. It, you know, it's not France where they give in to protest. That, that is, you know, you're on a hiding to nothing. You're not going to do that.
You mentioned the fact that she's Catholic, and this operates on the other side too, that's seen from the outside. There does seem to be a religious strain to some of this, the way this protest is happening, Christian and Buddhist too. There is there is religion on the other side as well, is that right? Right, right, right. Because the religious organization, they publicly against the beard. And this is very, very rare to see because they usually they just stay political neutral. But this time they show discontent towards the beard. And when you say the the religious organizations, you mean like um, the Christians. Um, yeah, one, one cardinal, I think Cardinal Zen. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, interesting name for cardinal. He came out and in favor. So there was about fifteen hundred churches. Ten uh, percent of the population is Christian, because the vast majority is Buddhist. But many religious organizations, religious leaders, have come out in 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 favor of the protest. And that has echoes of. Poland and solidarity, right? It, it, you, people who have historical memories, and one thing we know is that these kind of regimes have deep historical memories, they are aware of the parallel. Right, and the, sort of one background there that's interesting is that the Vatican and Beijing have just come to some sort of arrangement whereby the Vatican recognizes bishops appointed by Beijing, but that's not going to happen in Hong Kong. No way. So there's another whole split there. That's the background against which religious leaders, Christian religious leaders, Catholic religious leaders, are responding to these protests. And it's a huge issue. Buddhism is there, of course, but Christianity is actually, you know, Joshua Wong was a, was a Lutheran, actually. So I think Christianity is quite important in these protests. We also have in Hong Kong a kind of turbocharged form of capitalism on a very small geographical space where, apart from anything else, lots of things might lie behind this, but there isn't anywhere for young people to live. I mean, that is also part of what's going on here. There is a housing crisis. There always has been in Hong Kong, but... It's acute, isn't it? It is an acute housing crisis, and young people have no chance. Many people in their 30s and 40s still live with their parents, and even in small apartments. It is an artificial problem in the sense that there actually is quite a bit of land. And Carrie Lam, to to her credit, has tried to do something about this. He's talking about huge land reclamation schemes, but that Hong Kong government is fiscally utterly dependent on land. So income tax is very little. There's a bit of profit tax, but most of the revenue, and, and the Hong Kong government always runs a surplus, lots of money, comes from development money and from stamp duty. Stamp duty is about 30% of revenue. So, and the land is controlled. During the Cultural Revolution, a couple of people were starting to buy up huge amounts of lands then for development. So people like Li Ka-shing is one. The Kwok brothers are famously... So the land is controlled by very few people who are therefore very close to the government. They are also very close to Beijing. So when Beijing talked about one country, two systems, it talked about there's China and then you tycoons, you run Hong Kong. That's fine. And, and so they ran a system where that that's vicious cycle of having a huge rent and very costly development is just favoring these tycoons. So the other system is not democracy and the rule of law. The other system is oligarchy and it's, it's, tycoon rule. It's tycoon rent-seeking behavior. Both the government and the tycoons are rent-seeking cooperations and they are sort of mutually dependent and various people, various politicians have tried to do something about it. They all have failed. Because that seems like another reason why this is a repudiation of one country, two systems, not because people are saying, we want the system you promised us, but by saying, we don't want the other system that you promised us. I think this is a very serious problem in Hong Kong because youngsters like me, I I don't see the future because I don't even think of the possibility of buying a flat because it's too expensive or even just renting a subdivided flat is kind of difficult for me. And that's why even if your basic living necessities could not be satisfied, 
how can you be satisfied with the government rulings and the governance of the city? This is no way. And that's why the anger is from the youngsters, quite a number of the youngsters to a large extent, they came out to the streets. One of the greatest reasons is because of the tycoon issues, because they are not satisfied with what the government did. Finally, one other thing that people in the West are very aware of with China is the social credit system, the idea that there is going to be introduced a way of using digital technology to integrate citizenship and services. Is there any fear in Hong Kong that that also is one of the ways in which the the mainland system is going to infiltrate? Right, and actually in recent days, there are some news coverage suggesting that probably the social credit system is going to introduce to Hong Kong in the following two to three years Though the government denied, mistrust in the society is still spreading and they don't believe what the government said. And they still have the fear that, all right, the social credit system is going to be introduced. Because like nowadays, the government, they're using the excuse of a very smart city and they buy a lot of surveillance systems. They said that it's helped to enhance the ruling. But a lot of people just kind of suspected that it is another way to trace them, to trace the location of the protesters and to tighten their control and to kind of intrude into our human rights. And this is kind of worrying. And I think we should pay more attention in order to ensure that the social credit system is not going to be introduced in Hong Kong. I think that sums up one of the basic issues here, which is a breakdown of trust between a large part of the people living in Hong Kong and the government. It seems every step they're going to make is going to just worsen this. I think Beijing has to think very carefully about what it's going to do next. Otherwise, this has a real potential to spin out of, spin out of control. Right, yeah. Angus's journalism is in Chinese, but he's going to give us some links to English language sources, and we will tweet those at tppodcast underscore. We've recorded a guide with hands to the Chinese Communist Party in which we talk about some of the things we discussed today, including the social credit system and some of the pressures in mainland China from students on the regime in Beijing. Next week, it's just going to be Helen and me. We haven't done that for a while, and we're going to be trying to work out where we think we are before the week after we discover who our new prime minister is. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. 
Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.